Why do people go bald? Why are baboons bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do minus heat stayed after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, Dave Ansell and Chris Smith. Now, um, first of all, Tony from Westcliff has an intriguing question, and here he is. Hello, Tony. Good evening. So lovely to talk to you again. Thank you, darling. Lovely to talk to you again. You're through to Dr. Chris and Dr. Dave. Right. So I say my question. Um, it's this. Uh, if I had a blood transfusion, or anybody had a blood transfusion and completely changed, you know, had a complete fill-up, as it were, I don't know if that's possible, but if it was... Uh, if they had a complete blood transfusion, would their DNA uh, be theirs, or would it be of the person who gave the blood? Or for how long would it stay like that? Right, well, in the old days, Tony, you're right that it's quite possible you could have ended up with someone else's DNA. Yeah. But these days, what we do to blood when it's donated is what's called leukodepletion. You remove all the white blood cells. And why that's important is that white blood cells are the only blood cells that actually have DNA in them because when you make red blood cells, they come out of your bone marrow and the nucleus, which is the structure in the middle of the cell where the DNA sits, is removed from the cell. And you can tell this is uh, what happens because sometimes when people are having drug tests and things, they try to dupe the system by handing in some blood which actually belongs to another animal, not even a human. And they often, for some reason, pick on chicken's blood. And you can tell that they've pulled a fast one because chickens, like dinosaurs and lizards and other reptiles, differ from us because their red blood cells do have a nucleus and they do have DNA in them. So you can tell immediately that someone's being naughty. But the bottom line is, if you have a blood transfusion, there are no white blood cells in it. It's for good reason, because you don't want someone else's white blood cells in your blood because they might attack your body. And that means that uh, then there's no DNA going in with the transfusion to speak of. So you shouldn't actually change blood group or anything. The only exception to this rule is if you have a bone marrow transplant and you end up with someone else's bone marrow. And under those circumstances, you can get a change of blood group, which is a switch to your own donor's marrow, which will be a new blood group that your donor had. I see. So your, your DNA would change, in other words. Yeah, whenever you have some kind of transplant, it doesn't just have to be a bone marrow transplant. Say you had a liver transplant or say you had cystic fibrosis and needed a lung transplant, the organ that you receive is from someone else and so it has their cells and their DNA in it. And that's why a, a lung transplant for cystic fibrosis works because the lungs, the new healthy set of lungs, have a protein in them which is the correct version of that protein compared with the person who has cystic fibrosis and Uh has the wrong version of the protein, and that's why it cures you, because you're using someone else's version of the gene in their tissue. Ah, that's very interesting, Doctor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, dear. What have we got here? Uh, Wendy from Haverhill wants to know if you're sitting on a train and throw an object in the air when the train is travelling at 80 miles per hour. I can see Dr Dave's yep. brain going working now. How come the object does not land several feet from you? Um, <clears throat> this is something worked out actually by a guy called Galileo, an Italian in the 16th, no, 15th century actually. Um, he worked out that kind of all speeds are relative. 
So actually, if if you're moving at 60 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour, then and you, everything else is moving at 80 miles an hour, it just wants to keep on going at 80 miles an hour. So if you throw, up, throw it up in the air, it will want to keep on going 80 miles an hour forward. So it will just come, and because you're going 80 miles an hour, it will just come down and land exactly relative to you as it would do, even though outside it's moving at 80 miles an hour. Um, this is true of everything. If you think about it, the Earth is moving at several thousand miles an hour going around the sun all the time, but we don't feel it because everything is going at that same speed. So you don't notice the differences. You only notice the differences if there's something, um, if you're moving through something stationary, like if you're moving 80 miles an hour through water and you threw something out of the window, it would suddenly get slowed down because it would get lots of friction from the water hmm. and move, start moving at the speed of the water. But if there's no friction there, then it'll just keep on going at the same speed as you are and you won't notice. Mm, good stuff. All right. I hope that's answered that question. Now, um, Matt from Benfleet would like to know if it's possible to invent a time machine as featured in films. Um, as far as we know, probably not. Um, there have, I mean, uh, we haven't found any evidence of anything being able to go back in time. Um, as far as we, according to various of Einstein's theories, um, you ba- well, basically all the Einstein's theories are kind of based around the idea that you can't send messages back in time, and they've predicted all sorts of useful, interesting things, which we, um, which seem to be interesting and have worked very, very accurately. Um, there are various things if you push them very, very to very, very strange um, things. If you can kind of curve space back on itself, you might be able to produce a loop in time where things can kind of go back and then go forward and then keep going back in circles. Mm. But I think there's a lot of arguments about whether that's actually possible and no one's ever seen anything which would work like that. Um, hi to uh, John in Ipswich. He says um, he wants to know how trees lift water from the ground as stated by Attenborough. Don't well, it's not Attenborough. I mean, th- th- this is something which people have known about for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And trees are very, very clever because they have this very dense network of vessels, a bit like human beings do, really, except that trees have two systems of vessels. They both go upwards, but in one set of them, they also go downwards. Now, what a tree does, it's very simply to get water from out of the ground up to the top of the tree, is to use these very fine system of vessels called xylem. And if you look at a tree, it's got roots under the ground, it's got leaves way up at the top of the tree, out at the top in the sky. And connecting the root to one of those leaves is a, is a micro-thin tube, and there are millions of them, these xylem vessels. In fact, they're 0.02 or 0.01 millimetres in diameter, each of them. And what this does is create very thin columns of water which run from the root right up to the leaf. And when they open into the leaf, the leaf actually has a hollow interior. And the reason a leaf has a hollow interior is because it needs to suck in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which it nicks the carbon from and turns it into sugar, and it releases the oxygen, and that's what we breathe. And in order to soak up that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, it has to make the interior, that hollow space, damp, because carbon dioxide dissolves well in water, and that's how the plants pick up the CO2. So the water from the root in this site goes up this xylem, and spreads out over the inside of the leaf where it helps the CO2 to dissolve, but at the same time that water evaporates. And this is a process called transpiration. And the evaporation creates more space for more water molecules. And because water molecules are inherently sticky, the loss of some water molecules pulls other water molecules out of those tubes. And this pulls the water all the way up the tree. And at that kind of calibre, 0.01 millimetres, the water in those columns has the same tensile strength as as a steel thread. 
So it's very, very strong, and that's why you're able to pull water up a huge height, some trees 100 metres plus tall, and that's how they do it. And let's say good evening to Les. Hello, Les. Hello. Hello there. You're through to um, our astounding doctors. That's a... <laughs> Something like that, anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's your question? I caught a little bit of the... where it's on about change, possibly changing the DNA by trans, uh, transfusion or transplant of... Um, of the body. Well, why doesn't the sort of the major part of the body, i.e., the rest of you, um, beat it? Why don't you get rejection? I yeah. guess that's what you're yeah. sort of suggesting. Well, well uh, I, I don't get the anti-rejection drugs, but I would have thought, you know, you know, if I had an arm transplanted, then there's a lot more of me than the the donor arm, <laughs> isn't there? Yeah, that's right. And when you look at how the immune system works, what it's doing is it's reacting to uh, various m- sort of structures on the surface of cells. Uh, these are called antigens. And everyone has their own pattern of these antigens on their cell surface. And the immune system is programmed to be able to dis- discriminate you from not you. This is called self-recognition. And when you do a transplant, you have to be very careful to try to match as closely as you can the part of the body, the organ, even the bone marrow that you're putting in, so that it's as close a match to you uh, as, as possible. Uh, the idea being that then the immune system has the least to get upset about. Because if you put someone into you who's grossly different to you, genetically speaking, and therefore antigenically speaking, then the immune system tends to get more wound up about that. So what you're aiming for is as close a match as you can get. Then you control or tweak the system with immunosuppressive drugs. And drugs these days are pretty good. They can suppress the emergence of new clones of cells that would attack the foreign tissue whilst maintaining the existing immunity unaffected. Because what the immune system does, it doesn't have all its armies ready to go on demand all the time. The reason that you get ill and then get better is because when a new infection comes along or something the immune system has to respond to, the first thing it does is sizes up what it's trying to react to. Then the correct cells, which are in very small numbers in the body, which will respond to that thing, are recruited and then clonally expanded. They get copied many times and you make lots and lots of cells that can do the attacking for you. And what these anti-rejection drugs do is, although there will be cells that will attack the foreign tissue in your body, they keep those cells at very low numbers so that they can't attack the tissue and make you unwell. But all the other aspects of the immune system, which are already developed and reacting to things around you, they're not affected. So you stay well, you can continue to fight off infection, but you don't tend to fight off the new part of you that's been added. But it is still a problem, and and anti-rejection drugs aren't perfect, and they do have side effects. Oh, thanks for that. Brilliant, Les. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you. Ta-da. Uh, Chris, we've got Mike from Saxmundham on the phone. Good evening, Mike. Uh, good evening, Sue. I understand you're, um, you want to talk about gravity. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Dave's <laughs> smiling now. Yeah, well, sitting in my lounge, um, I saw a cobweb on the, on the ceiling, and I thought, I must get rid of that. And it actually fell down on its own, but the speed that it fell down has got me thinking, how can you measure the weight of something that the force of gravity has very little effect on? I always thought that the force of gravity was what would measure weight, example. Um, is there something that the gravity will not affect? If so, how can you measure it? Uh, are you, so if you're trying to weigh something in space where there's effectively no gravity, you want to know how you'd weigh it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the weight is that uh, something in space has no weight because weight is the force 
pulling that um, gravity is pulling on you with. So in, in, um, technically it has no weight, but what it does have is mass. So um, something with mass um, will be attracted to the Earth um, by a force, by the force of gravity, um, with, with a force which we call its weight. But right. you can measure its mass because mass also is um, how hard it is to accelerate it. So if you try and speed it up, you'll find that you need to apply. If you need to, sorry, if you need to try and speed up a heavy something with a large, large mass, you need to apply a large force. So if you want to speed up something with a small mass, you just need to apply a small force. Um, and so for that reason, if you put something um, on the end of a spring or the end of, between two springs and measure how fast it vibrates, you can work out its mass from that, even if there's no gravity at all. Okay, so this little cobweb that's slowly floating down, how would you go actually measure something like that? And can you measure the weight of something like that? I mean, measuring weights, I mean, measuring the weight of something like a cobweb, you could probably do it. There are scales which will measure down to probably, definitely down to millionths of a gram, if not less, if you, if you get an incredibly accurate balance. And then that's just measuring its weight. Um, measuring its mass directly, would, you probably wouldn't be nearly as accurate, but definitely measuring its weight, you could do like that quite easily. That's a good answer. Well, that's, that's my curiosity satisfied. I'm glad to help. <laughs> Thank well, we you. I presume, Dave, that with, with the cobweb, if you were to measure the weight with a very accurate balance, like you say, then all you'd have to do is to divide the weight by the effect that gravity has on it, and that would give you the mass, wouldn't it? Yes, but I, I was just trying to think, I think actually measuring it directly would be more difficult, as, as in just by measuring it, um, how much inertia it is, how difficult it is to accelerate. But yeah, you could work out its mass from its weight. So I'm now, I'm now the beneficiary of some really useless information, aren't I, in some respects? <laughs> you know how to wear a cobweb, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you never know what else you might discover with this as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. Take care, bye-bye. Thank you, bye-bye. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Uh, here's one about the, um, the universe. Mike in Fakenham says, if the universe is constantly expanding, what are we expanding into? Um, in our, as far as we can see, the way the universe is expanding, it's kind of slightly strange. Uh, it, if you imagine the universe, if you imagine a balloon and you draw lots of sort of galaxies on, on a balloon, um, when the balloon isn't inflated, they're quite close together. But as you blow up the balloon, you effectively sort of make more space in between them and everything gets further away. So, but if the balloon was minute, the, um, the, the, there's still um, there's not very much space, so all of the um, galaxies are close together. Yeah. So as the universe expands, the space is getting bigger as well in our three dimensions. So as far as we know, we're not really expanding into anything in our three dimensions. Um, if something's... We're not quite sure what... Because in the balloon that works because you've got kind of a, two, a surface of a balloon which is in two dimensions on a three-dimensional balloon. So if we're expanding to something else in, an, in some more dimensions, that's possible. But um, basically, in our, the way you normally think about it, the whole universe is expanding, including space. So we're not really expanding into anything unless you get very esoteric, which we don't have any evidence for. Right. Okay. Um. So it, it, it's kind of it's kind of well, weird. Mostly, yeah. we basically we don't know. All we know is that the space seems to be getting bigger, as well as um, as the galaxies get further apart. It's cosmic. 
Now, Dave in Lowestoft says he's 60 now. How long of a space journey would I have to take to come back when I was 50? As far as we know, you couldn't. Um, he's thinking um, if you go very, very far, strange things happen to time. But unless you, um, in some of the equations come out that if you were going faster than the speed of light, you could end up going back in time, sort of, maybe, but it's impossible to go faster than the speed of light. So we haven't been able to test it. And so and even if it did, the equations would probably start to behave slightly strangely. So as far as you know, we know you can't actually travel backwards in time by going very, very fast. But what you can do is make your time go slowly compared to someone else's. So if you, if you went here and then went near at the speed of light for 10, for 10 years and then came back again, then you would have aged less than the people who stayed in one place. But you wouldn't come back before that. So you could go back, you could fly off and come back again, and you'd, you'd only be 65, but all your mates were 80. But you couldn't come back <laughs> when, they were, when you were 50, I'm afraid. Right, OK. Confused? Yes, you will be. <laughs> you can slow time down, but you can't make it go backwards, basically. Oh, yeah, we've le- we're learning that. Now, Martin from Depot 73 says, A steel rod, six inches in diameter, is made into a ring. Will the hole in the centre change size as it is heated or cooled? Simple answer is yes. Um, as metals get hotter, they get bigger. And as they get colder, they get they shrink. Um, that's because of little atoms inside them. When they get hotter, they vibrate around more. And the more they vibrate, the more space they take up. So the bigger it gets. And if you make a ring, all of the parts of a ring bigger, then the hole in the middle will get bigger as well. Um, in fact, they use this to make £2 coins, I think. And what they do is they make they very carefully machine a whole a tube of metal of the kind of goldy coloured stuff, and then they machine another a rod which will f- which is too big to fit down the hole. And what they actually do instead of heating anything up, they actually cool down that rod to minus two hundred degrees centigrade or so, which means it shrinks and that will fit in the hole. They can push it down the hole, let it warm up, and it's jammed tight inside the outer ring. You can't get it out. And they slice it up and make two pound coins out of it. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Is that how they make them? Yes. Ah. It's also sometimes useful with jars because the uh, lid tends to expand more with heat than the um, glass jar. So if you heat up the lid, the lid tends to get a bit bigger, so it gets slightly less tight, so it's a bit easier to open. Ah. Now then, dear Dr Dave, could a telescope from 100 years ago pick out a small asteroid over 200,000 miles away? Mike in Peterborough on the text. Um, I think it probably depends. It's one of these depends. A uh, hundred years ago, was yeah, saying. yeah. A uh, hundred years ago, there were some pretty good telescopes. Um, they could definitely they found Pluto about a hundred years ago, and that's a long, long, long way away. Um, my my guess, I'm I, I would have to know more about everything and do some calculations. Would be that they could they could see it, but there weren't very many telescopes that would be able to. And the probability of actually looking in the right direction to see it is quite low. In fact, only very recently they've actually started doing surveys of the sky looking for asteroids which might hit the Earth. So you've got lots of, probably actually quite a lot smaller telescopes than you'd have 100 years ago. I mean, I think they had sort of good two or three metre telescopes 100 years ago. And the maximum now is um, about 10 metres is the biggest telescope they managed to build. And so they had telescopes which could see it, but the probability of them pointing in the right direction in order to see it is very small, because especially if you get a very, very high magnification telescope, they only look at a very, very tiny part of the sky at any one time. So the odds of something actually looking at it and actually being able to see it is very low, but it would be able to see it, I think. Mm. These days, actually, use quite small telescopes to look for near-Earth crossing asteroids. They're computerised and they take pictures of 
whole sky every few days or few weeks very regularly so they can see anything which changes and if they see a, a, a what looks like a star that moves in between every time they photograph it they can work out what trajectory it's going along and work out where it is and work out whether or not it's going to get close to the earth or possibly even hit us which is the ones which you've really got to be worried about because it doesn't take a very, very, very large asteroid to do an awful lot of damage to the Earth. That's right. That's obviously to do with the speed that it's going to hit us at, isn't it? Yeah, that it's going to hit us at at least 25,000 miles an hour, if not faster, depending on its orbit. It's only a kilometre across. That's still a billion tonnes of rock going at 25,000 miles an hour. And that can mess (laughs) mess up the Earth quite quite well. Very scary. I think the uh, asteroid which they think wiped out the dinosaurs was only a kilometre or so across, I think. And there's quite a lot of asteroids like that, but very few which cross the Earth's mm. orbit. Mm. Probably because most of the ones which would have crossed the Earth's orbit have already either hit us billions of years ago or have hit the sun or something else. Now, Mark in Wisbeach says, what is causing all the flooding on the broads? And why is the Norfolk coast in danger? Um, the, sand band, the sandbag fight is on at the moment, says Mark in Wisbeach. Any thoughts on that, Dave? What, normally you get big floods when you have a very a full moon because at the full moon or new moon, you get um, the highest tides because the Earth and the Moon align, the, the Sun and the Moon and the Earth all in, on a straight line, mm. which means that the gravitational effect on the tides adds together. Rather than if they're at 90 degrees, it subtracts. So you get the biggest tides. So if you've got a very big tide coming up, and then also the tide as in the mid, mid-oceans, it's quite low. It's only about a metre. You only get about a metre of tide if that. Then you sort of effectively get a wave coming across the Atlantic. And if it comes down the North Sea, the North Sea kind of gets narrower. And so this wave gets higher and higher, just like a wave breaking against the beach. So you get that effect. Also, if you get a low-pressure area moving towards, moving with the tidal wave, that low-pressure area effectively sucks more water up, increases the level of the sea. Um, So that increases the the water level even more. And then if you get some heavy rain on top of that, you can get very high tides. I'm not sure how many of those are happening at the moment because I haven't, I'm not, haven't actually looked at a weather map to see. Mm. Um, Martin says, is there any impact on the shuttle landing on the on the shuttle's landings to the position of the moon? E.g., like if it's on a full moon, does it have a different impact or anything like that? Does it change anything? Um, it will affect its orbit very, very slightly because that basically the um, shuttle, when it's in orbit, it's falling all the time. It's just falling under gravity. It's just it's falling. It's moving so fast that by the time it should have hit the Earth, it's missed it. It's just falling all the time. It just misses the Earth every time it goes past. Um, and the Moon is, exerts gravity as well. Um, and so that will have an effect on which direction it's falling, and it will affect the orbit very slightly. But it's at least a thousandth of the Earth's strength of the Earth's gravity, if not slightly weaker than that. So it's not going to have a very large effect. So I'm sure they take it into account, and they take it into account on when they fire the manoeuvring rockets in order to make it land where it should do. But you can land at any time of the month, as it were, with your shuttle. It's not a big enough effect to cause any major problems. All right, so once we get into um, the travel industry, then, and we're landing on the mood, it, there won't be sort of any special rates for if you go, you know, in September, as opposed to you know, when it's a full or lesser moon. Um, possibly not. You do sometimes get, if you're going further than the moon, you do get some, <laughs> um, you do get some times when it's easier to get to other planets than others because you can kind of 
go past one planet and get a kick from from you can get a kick from oh, venus right. and that can give you a bit more speed than a kick from mars and if they're all lined up right i think the voyager's got it so they could get a kick from mars then jupiter then saturn and so they could get all the way out to uranus much quicker than you would do if you had to use your own rockets. Thank you for that, Dave. Right, a question. How long do you have to have the engine turned off on your car at a traffic light before you use less petrol than letting it run the whole time you sit there? Um, I can't give you any numbers again. I think it very much depends on your engine and how your engine's set up. I do know that there are some delivery vans which have been designed with a very large um, starter motor and it's sufficient for them to turn off for more than after about two or three minutes. I mean, guess basically what he's saying is that um, starting an engine's inefficient because the engine's not hot enough. Um, it'll tend to, if you t- whenever you start an engine, quite often with old cars especially, you see a big cloud of, of smoke coming out the back. Yeah, I and often that, do. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. and, that, and that cloud of smoke is going to be un- either unburnt petrol if it's white or um, petrol which has been burnt but not burnt all the carbon in it if it's black. And so that's it, wasted energy. Um, so I think with modern, very efficient engines, probably two or three minutes, probably a bit longer for an older car. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.